Welcome to the Odyssey Podcasts. This is Jean Cavellos, Director of Odyssey. Odyssey is an intensive six-week workshop for writers of fantasy, science fiction, and horror whose work is approaching publication quality and for published writers who want to improve their work. Odyssey is held each summer on the campus of St. Anselm College in Manchester, New Hampshire. Adult writers from all over the world apply. Only 16 are admitted. Top authors, editors, and agents serve as guest lecturers. For more information, visit www.odysseyworkshop.org. Podcast 42 is an excerpt from Gregory Frost's lecture at Odyssey 2010 on viewpoint, voice, and psychic distance. This is part two. For part one, listen to podcast 41. The text of this recording is copyright 2010 by Gregory Frost. The sound recording is copyright 2010 by Odyssey Writing Workshops. So, those are the flavors of third person. And we'll move on to second person, which is you, as it implies. Other writers have used second person to great effect include Jay McInerney, Bright Lights, Big City is a second person novel. Laurie Moore, who's written dozens of fictional works, most of them fairly amusing in second person voice, like How to Be a Writer, which is a great short story, by the way, I recommend it. And Kelly Link, who's probably written about half of her body of work in second person, she uses it a lot. I've used it exactly once for a story of mine called The Madonna of the Maquiladora. I wanted a story that created a kind of weird and off-kilter and sort of nightmarish feel to it because I was writing a story that's set mostly in Juarez, Mexico, which is a nasty, nasty place. And uh, Fuentes did the same thing. His second person narration in Aura kind of keeps you off balance throughout the story. Everything's sort of like a funhouse mirror. It's got that kind of odd effect to it. The idea, again, of second person is you don't know anything about the person's name necessarily. You're sort of inside them, but still there's an author kind of in between you and that character. You're not inside that character's head at the same time that you seem to be. And if you look at Jonathan Nolan's Memento Mori, once again, you can see somebody using second person as half of their narrative, switching between third and, and second throughout the story. The voice inside has opinions about the character you're reading about in third person in the other sections of the story and is voicing those opinions. So you've got one voice that's effectively inside the character and one voice that's effectively outside the character. And those two points of view combine to create the voice of the story. And that's sort of the difference, and I'll come back to this, between point of view and voice, is the voice of the story is an amalgam of all the points of view you decide to use in your story. So if you're using multiple points of view, the voice of your story is multiple points of view. You're shifting into different consciousnesses. You're shifting into different opinions and different attitudes, and that collectively becomes the voice of your story. So anyway, second person, not used very often, mostly in experimental form. It's probably not one you'll write in a lot or at all. And so finally we come to first person, the narrative I. So the tone is attached to the delivery, and that's the thing with first person, 
is you have a lot more flexibility in terms of the tone you can deliver in the story because the first person narrator's voice is going to be much more apparent than the third person, in which case it's the author. So what that voice is telling you is what kind of story this is going to be right up front. The first person narrative itself, as I say, delivers a character voice. So the voice of Philip Marlowe is present in those first sentences, even though he hasn't yet identified it as a first-person narrative. But you know it is because there's so much character being delivered. Again, the tone of it is so clear right from the beginning. You know you're inside somebody's opinions. So if that were third person, that author is really loud and very apparent in that story. But it's not. It's a first-person narrative. Chandler and Hammett and probably hundreds of other pulp and mystery writers have used first-person narration to great effect. In first-person narration, every single thing is potentially colored by the opinions and the attitudes of the narrator rather than the author. So in first-person, the author has disappeared. That neutral author who could describe the character, could tell you lots of things that aren't even about the character that you're following around in third person, that guy's gone. Everything now is delivered from within the viewpoint of a first person narrator who is a character in the story. So once you get to first person, the author has evaporated completely. And your character within your story is delivering that story. As with Third Person Limited, you cannot know or reveal the thoughts of anybody except the narrator. So you're inside somebody's point of view. The entire story is effectively interior because it's being delivered from somebody's point of view. He can't, unless he's psychic, and it's an Alfred Bester novel or something, he can't know what anybody else is thinking throughout the story. A first person narrator is almost never going to be described either, except through voice and tone. Only a narcissist is going to tell you what he looks like if he's doing the narrating of the story. Some people cheat this by having the character stand in front of a mirror and tie a tie or put on their makeup or something like that. This is a cheat. First, it's mostly unnecessary to do that. Second, the reader is already getting the sense of who this is and building their pictograph of this character from that voice. Your image of him is already built based on how he sounds on the page. You don't need to know what he looks like. You've created him already, or the reader's created him already. That's how important voice is, especially in first-person narration. The voice will tell them everything. The tone will tell them everything. So there are a lot of varieties of first-person. Um, it has the most flavors of all of them. The first is the interior monologue. It's basically that kind of stream-of-consciousness approach. Sentences can fragment, they can break down, totally inside somebody's head. That's more first-person narration, even than regular first-person narration, if you will. Um, in an interior monologue, what appears on the page can physically represent the state of a person's mind. So if your main character narrating the story is starting to come apart, you can have the sentences actually reflect this as the sentences fragment more and more as the story goes on if you want to experiment with that. Something that David Morrell mentions in his book on writing too is that the question that least often gets asked when somebody wants to do a first-person narration and should be asked is who's listening? Not so much who's speaking but who's listening? If you're delivering, like you say, an interior monologue, who are you telling it to except yourself? Even if you're doing a dramatic monologue, which is the next flavor of first person, the question comes back, 
who's listening? A lot of people, I think, just don't bother thinking about that, and a lot of first-person narration doesn't really care about that either. It's just, you know, Raymond Chandler doesn't care who's listening to Philip Marlowe. Philip Marlowe is telling you, the reader, these things. But it's a good question to ask yourself if you're choosing first-person is, okay, who's the audience that's hearing this? Where is this being narrated from? It's not one you're going to answer every time, but it's one that's worth thinking about as you, as you choose that flavor. The dramatic monologue is the Chandler, the Hammett, Mark Twain, people like that. It's a knowing voice that's telling a story that's coloring it with opinions and attitudes and distortion. The dramatic monologue also includes Sherlock Holmes, where the main person telling you the story is not the main character. Um, the person relating the story isn't the main character, and that comes back in some of the other versions of this that we'll get to in a minute. The next flavor of first person is the epistle or the letter. This is a form that often takes the form of a back and forth between two characters, where you get letters between two people and your story is built on the back and forth in those letters. The Griffin and Sabine books are all done along that, that structure. Letters are always written after the events have occurred. So this is one of the limitations of choosing this and also diary and journal, which we'll get to in a second. Those all happen after the events have taken place. This means that whoever is writing this has survived whatever has happened. So you're altering to some extent how much you can use putting the character in jeopardy or in peril, or you've got to work really hard with that narrative to make it very, very intense so that the reader forgets that obviously this person lived, they're still telling the story. You can work with that a little bit, but you sort of have to up the intensity of the narrative itself because you know that this is written after the fact. You know this person has survived the events. So related to the epistolary novel is the novel that's written in diary or journal format. Bram Stoker's Dracula is a good example of this, an entire book that's written as a mix of letters and diary entries, etc., etc. As with the epistolary, everything is written after the fact. Everything comes to you after the fact. Likewise, the fictional memoir, Poe's Fall of the House of Usher being an example of this, is the narrator has survived everything that goes on. The narrator is an observer of events the same as Watson is with Sherlock Holmes. They're not that much in, well, they're not in trouble in the same sense that the main character is. In Poe's The House of Usher, Roderick Usher is his friend. These terrible events have befallen Roderick and his sister not the narrator, but you care about Roderick and his sister as much as the narrator cares. So in that kind of situation, that, that fictional memoir situation, how much the person narrating the story invests in the characters who are in jeopardy is going to be how much the reader invests in the characters that are in jeopardy. That voice is going to make them interested, make them care about what happens. A lot of times the journal or the memoir and even the diary style, will be from somebody who is an observer, who is a friend of the person who's really the main character in the story. We, we were just talking a few minutes ago about the notion of easing between the levels in, in psychic distance. It's the same thing there. You're starting out in what is clearly a diary entry, but you're easing into a point where you're oh, quoting people directly. Yeah, it's all first person. So you're, you're first person, but you're moving from what feels like diary entry into actually quoting the dialogue from people is sliding into it, sliding out. 
and to some extent it's the same as moving in and out of ground with flashbacks and that sort of thing where you want to ease into something that's in past perfect tense and then you can eventually be in just past tense because we know we're in the flashback but then when you come back again you've got to move back into past perfect to kind of shift back and say we're coming out of the flashback now and back into past tense. So yeah, it's very much like that. It's a question of handling it and trying to make it as, as seamless as possible for the reader. You know, anything you do that pops the reader out of the story is a bad thing because then they're going, what happened just now? And now they're not reading your story. So you always want to make it as seamless as possible that you're moving into where we're going to really stop acting like it's a diary and we're going to start relating what people actually said if that's what you want to do with the story. So you kind of got to move in and out of that um, and control it as much as possible. So when you're choosing point of view, the questions you're asking yourself are, what do I want to do to the reader? That's a question to ask yourself all the time anyway. What do I want to do to the reader? Can the reader get what they need to know from inside a single narrator or not? Will I need to describe some events where that narrator isn't present if I'm thinking I'm going to use this single person's point of view. Will the story be as gripping if I'm telling it after the fact, or if I jump between multiple points of view? And probably the key question to all this is, whose story is this? Whose story am I telling? If you look at the fall of the House of Usher, it's Roderick Usher's story that's being told, even though the narrator is, you know, is frantic and, and insane. That's Poe. So whose story do you mean to tell? Whose story do you want us to hear about? And remember, once again, point of view is the delivery system of your tale. Whatever story you want to tell, you're telling it from this point of view. Every story has a voice. A good definition of voice uh, is by an author named Don Fry, and that is that voice is the sum of all the strategies used by the author to create the illusion that the writer, narrator, or narrative is speaking directly to the reader from the page. The sum of all the strategies used by the author to create the illusion that the writer, the narrator, the narrative is speaking directly to the reader from the page. The most important words in that are create, illusion, and speaking. Voice is an effect created by the writer that reaches the reader through his ears even when he's receiving the message through his eyes. That's the funky thing about reading. Is you're reading words on a page and you're hearing what you read. And the old saw about fiction being that all the stories have been told, we all know the stories, there are only this handful of plots or what have you. If that's true, the only thing you have in the end that distinguishes your writing from everybody else's is the voice you're telling it in. Nobody's ever told a story in the voice that you're using. Nobody's ever created this character with these opinions, with this story to deliver. So at that point, your voice becomes the most critical thing in your story because we have to assume that all these stories have been told already. We're told that over and over again. Finding the voice that delivers your story is finally everything. And it's the reason the story's worth hearing again. Point of view is an element of voice, but again, I distinguish them because the voice of a story can comprise multiple points of view. 
used at different times in the story to tell you different characters' perspective. It's all subjective, and that assemblage is giving you a story, giving the reader a picture of all those different points of view, sort of triangulating on the thing that you want to get to. This is the end of part two. For part one, listen to podcast 41. The text of this recording is copyright 2010 by Gregory Frost. The sound recording is copyright 2010 by Odyssey Writing Workshops.